Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Developing Developers for the first episode of 2023. I hope you have enjoyed the Digging Deeper series thus far and have learned a thing or two along the way. Although we will never really stop digging deeper through our other episode topics, this will be the final episode in this series. To wrap it up, I've invited Brad DeHaze with Connect Real Estate to talk about the topic of redevelopment. As the founder and president of Connect Real Estate and Connect Construction, Brad has experience with all aspects of the commercial real estate industry, but is an expert specifically in the adaptive reuse of historic commercial properties. I'm looking forward to learning about a brand new topic and something that has so greatly impacted the city of Columbus. So Brad, thank you for taking the time to be here today and your willingness to share your knowledge and experience. Uh, We can go ahead and jump in and get started. That sounds great. Thank you for having me, Allie. Yeah, of course. So I know I mentioned that you focus on the adaptive reuse of historic properties. Can you share a bit of your career experience and what your role entails now? Yeah, so we do all different types of development, but I think over the last 10 years, we've, we've received a lot more recognition for our adaptive reuse projects just because uh, we do a, a significant amount of work downtown. The um, my experience, um, I grew up and uh, I was born in Finley, Ohio. Uh, went to elementary school down in Portsmouth, and then I went to high school in Cambridge. So I moved all over Ohio growing up, and then I went to college at Allegheny uh, in northern Pennsylvania, and I went over there to play football. And I thought I was going to go into pre med, and then I, um, you know, got homesick, came back, and I went to Muskingum University in New Concord, Ohio, and that is where. I, uh, I started getting into uh, real estate. So we had, my mother had an appraisal company in Cambridge and, and you know, during the off season I would go and I, I took appraisal courses and I went to college for appraisal while I was in college at Muskingum and uh, started flipping houses, wow. uh, started doing a lot of uh, things when I was young and naive and it worked out <laughs> great because, you know, it was, it was a little bit fearless. I think I didn't know what to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that, uh, I, I saw, I grew up in a real estate brokerage. My mother had a brokerage and an appraisal company and, uh, they had like an auctioneering arm to it also. So I got to see those elements of the business. Um, but I really didn't participate in it until I got in college. And then, but then I was kind of like gasoline on a fire. Once I got, once I got the taste of it, I started moving forward and I got to know a lot of investors, uh, smaller, uh, rehab developers, things like that. Uh, so I started doing projects and, um, Zanesville, Ohio, Parkersburg, West Virginia, Canton, Ohio, uh, Cambridge, uh, then Columbus. I was actually at appraisal school and had a, uh, a person that was there. I uh, was like a retired teamster and he sat next to me in appraisal school in Columbus at Hondros. <laughs> and I think I was 20, I was 20, something like wow. that, 21. Mm-hmm. And, uh, took a liking to me. And, and then he went and said Ohio state football game and sat next to, uh, an ex-Buckeye uh, that went on to the NFL. And then uh, he told him about me. And next thing I know, I got a call and I was still in college from, oh from this gentleman. And uh, next thing I know, they were in Zanesville, Ohio, where I was living off campus and showed up at my house. And uh, before I knew it, I was buying houses in Wineland Park wow. in Columbus mm-hmm. in you know, early 20s. And then uh, when I first moved to Columbus, I lived on Franklin Park over on the near east side, uh, just before you hit Bexley. And I started doing, you know, I was doing single families, duplexes, uh, four families, eight units. And I got into small apartments, uh, small apartment complexes, 
Um, and I really was doing a significant amount of acquiring, you know, rehabilitating, mm -hmm. selling. And I just, there was a point in time where I just got, I got tired of recreating my income. So I, I decided to start uh, doing property management. And at that time, then uh, we had our own real estate brokerage. I had a commercial building downtown. A friend of mine had a mortgage brokerage in. And this was when kind of everybody in the mortgage industry was just throwing everything they could against the wall to see what stuck. And we saw the writing on the wall just mm -hmm. by the talent, you know, or, or kind of lack of talent that was coming through the doors in the industry. And uh, so we started selling assets. And I remember when that happened, we, we, uh, you know, we really started to push then into acquiring and holding. And when that happened is when everything really started to turn. We started doing condo conversions, uh, new build development. Um, you know, then the, the historic component really came in when we started, you know, when the market crash came. We started acquiring assets downtown, and that was a big, big move, you know, for us. And I think our company, Connect Real Estate, was maybe, I don't know, five employees at the time, something like that. Uh, we were in the short north in the Dakota building. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we had maybe seven real estate agents. So we were, we were probably tilting more towards, you know, brokerage. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and we had the management company that I operated. And this would have been 2008. Yeah. And I would say from 08 until 2012 was probably when we got really our teeth in the downtown market. And from there, I mean, we just started acquiring surface parking lots and buildings and, you know, a, a significant amount of existing real estate. And the growth of Columbus really is what helped drive us uh, into, you know, becoming, you know, better developers. Mm -hmm. Our construction company, I started, I want to say I started it in 2001, maybe 2002. So I've had it for maybe 20, 20 years, 21 years now. And... Um, in 2007, uh, AJ Hawk became my partner, a uh, football player. He was at Green Bay at the time, and we were good friends. And he uh, he just you know wanted to be a participant in a construction company, mm -hmm. and you know we had to talk about um, what you know what he wanted to do you know with regards to real estate, and he started getting involved in projects, and you know we're still partners today. Uh, it's evolved into. Uh, you know, a self-performed business called Mid Ohio Contracting Services, and then we both co-own along with another gentleman that came over from Turner Constructions mm -hmm. several years back uh, to start our construction company. That's General Contracting, which is uh, uh, Connect Construction. So now we're, I think we're, we're in all of our businesses. I think we're maybe a, a little, a little more than two hundred employees. At least we were pre-COVID. We went down, to, I think one, one sixty. But we have a hospitality group that. That a lot of those, a lot of that attrition, that's where it happened, and they've staffed back up. But um, yeah, we're, you know, it's 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 kind because of kind of wild how it happened. Yeah, it's kind of wild how everything came together. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it was it really all just started from you know flipping real estate in Eastern Ohio and and just got you know, you know did it when I was really young and and things grew yeah. quick. Well, that's awesome. I think uh, it's really cool how you started with even just flipping houses. I think a lot of people um, are interested in real estate and start doing that kind of early on, but it's cool to see how much that has grown into. And you probably had no idea what you were getting into when you even came back to go to school here. So that's cool to look back on that. Um, and I think 
when I think about Columbus, it always blows my mind that eventually everything will be developed. So you have to kind of start that redevelopment process at some point um, because obviously it's grown a lot and it will continue to grow. But then there will be a point where you look around and say, where else is there land? And there's not any and you have to, you know, re, uh, redevelop those properties. So that's you've gotten ahead of the game, I feel like, on that. Yeah, we tried. I've, I think one of the big th- one of the big things that we realized was, you know, the the best real estate was already built on, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, there's new growth that occurs and, and there's growth outward, um, which allowed for new development to occur. But when you talk about, you know, some of the better components of land, I mean, mm. we, we're not creating anymore. So, so what happened was, you know, I, we really got lucky with the city of Columbus taking an inward approach, uh, you know, in that 2010 through 2018 of doing the Sayota Greenways project and some of those elements downtown because we were just acquiring assets like crazy. And as that happened, we were then just had more and more fuel to be able to think about, you know, should we reinvest, reinvest, reinvest? And we kept doing it. And uh, and then we branched out from there. So I think we're, we're a huge beneficiary of the city of Columbus. And I, one of the bigger components for us was um, – you know, I had asked Mayor Coleman at one point, you know, what are your problem properties? And we just focused trying trying to take blight, you know, and mm-hmm. that that ended up, you know, you know, saying what we were going to do and then doing what we say uh, ended up being a huge boost for us because then we became trusted. And same thing at the state level is a lot of those tax credit programs uh, that we compete in. Uh, we became experts at that, you know, over time. You know, we had some employee acquisitions and a really good friend of mine from high school came on board. That's uh, uh, our CFO. And actually, my, my sister-in-law is our president. Uh, that's my wife's sister. And um, and we just, great leadership team. My brother is our director of marketing. <laughs> it's a, so just a family business. Absolutely. A, a friend of mine from high school actually uh, runs all of our hospitality. Wow. Yeah. So, and then, you know, I have other... Our low-income housing division is ran by a, a gentleman uh, from Upper Arlington I've been friends with for probably 12 years now. So uh, I think we coach together in flag football. Oh, my and, gosh. Yeah, so it's a, it's amazing how it's, you know, kind of grown and mm-hmm. stuck. But then as we've accumulated more and more employees and, and you know, I know that I've, I have leaders I can trust. Mm-hmm. And that's what really helps. And partners that I can trust. And, um, you know, with Columbus's growth going into it, uh, it, it was it's, it's been a lot of positives. Yeah, that's awesome. I think having people you can trust is one of the most important things you can do to be successful. Um, and I do want to jump into the um, tax credit program in a little bit. But before we head that direction, um, could we talk about the major differences between ground up development and the redevelopment process? And I ask mostly because I'm mostly familiar with ground up development. And that's what we've focused on a lot in this podcast. Um, and so I'm curious if there's any big differences that people should be aware of. I, I think the biggest difference I would say is, is knowing who you can rely on, you know, in your, in your project, you know, you typically in new build development, you start with your civil engineer and your zoning attorney and, um, obviously incredibly, uh, important components of the deal. Um, but once you start with that, it's, it's kind of a can I, you know, can I approach, right? Mm-hmm. Can I, can I do this? Can I build this here? You know, would this work? Would they let me? Mm-hmm. And once you get through that and you get through like your E plan, uh, then, then you kind of have a you know, clear, you can pave your way to really dig in with your architecture and mechanical engineering, structural engineering. 
And as you go through the build, you can then rely on your contractor to handle a lot of these, uh, you know, changes in scope because they're, they're, you, can, you can manage a little bit more from your office. Um, obviously, it's never good to manage from your office, but I, mean, I think with new build, you, you, your days on the job site are less than, than with an existing structure. And it's a little more straightforward. So the talent level of your project manager, obviously for a typical project like apartments or office, this, this, you know, everything's complicated if, if you get into medical and, and some of those other fields, but, um, and industrial. But I, I think at the same time as when, when you're, when you're in the, a project that is all new build, you can put a lot of the onus back on the subcontractor. Uh, the contract, uh, is, is a little bit less gray. So, you know, you still are going to get pounded by your general contractor and change orders. And, um, you know, timeline delays and material delays and everybody is, you know, I, we, we've been joking. We've seen for, lots of that lately. Oh, yeah. yeah we, if, if, if anyone listening to the podcast knows of a, how we can invest in construction litigation attorneys, <laughs> let, let us know. Because I think that's probably, that's probably the industry that's seen the most rise in the last two to three years, um, yeah. unfortunately. But um, with, with an existing structure, everything changes and moves. So it's more of you really need to have good partners in the project uh, because one of the things and, and a good partner is also a tenant and because they, they take longer, it's uh, even even with when you're not you know battling against area commissions on zoning, mm-hmm. the components of the deal are just difficult and everything that moves could develop a change order. And as you dig into that, you know it's your, your contracts are a little bit more field verify. And it's just, it's hard. Everything's hard. Um, if you're going to do it at a large scale, if you do it at a small scale, then it's not, it's not quite as difficult because, you know, there's, you can make mistakes, plow through it, and it doesn't lead you down this path of possibly no return. Mm-hmm. But to do an existing adaptive reuse on a large scale building, it, it's the, the risk is, is explosive. And if you don't understand from the very beginning where it could go wrong, you can get down a path where there's no return, where the project is partially built and it stops. And that is where, you know, we, we always, I've always said that I do not want a career changer, good or bad, mm-hmm. you know, and we've been growing and growing and growing, but, you know, we've always, I think, stayed, we've led with revenue and we've stayed behind on what we could be doing, you know, even though it seems like we take on a lot of projects. Nice. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we saw some huge successes early and, and we just, you know, we, we started out doing, you know, when I was 20, you do projects that are a hundred thousand. And the next thing you know, they're 300, then a million, then 3 million, then 5 million. Then you have five, $5 million projects. Mm -hmm. And then you grow to 20, 30. And, you know, now we're, you know, 50, 80 million and projects, you know, and, and, and they just keep growing from there. Um, The thing with us is, you know, we just try to take step back and have a thorough understanding. So we take our time and drag.
you know, I guess you could say, you know, kind of developers for things that are in the public's interest. Um, and by doing that, then you build trust. Mm -hmm. So on the, on the existing building side, you need that when things go wrong, because what happens is, you know, plans examiners, uh, you know, uh, Code officials, all of these elements that are very standard and straightforward in new build construction are anything but an adaptive reuse. And, you know, how to build a place out, you know, to make sure you have the correct ADA access, you know, from, from parking through new build, new build additions back into a historic building. Mm -hmm. All those elements, the sloping and, and you know, uh, fire rate of separations, all of those are things that you would think an architect or an engineer uh, would just have those on lockdown, but no one can, no one can. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, it doesn't pay to just be a finger pointer. And what we found is that, you know, through, through conflict comes compromise. Uh, but we've got, we have really good partners. We have, you know, the architects, engineers that we work with that we've been through some tough times. We've handled some tough issues. We have a great relationship usually with the municipality that we're building in because we need it. Um, and for the adaptive reuse projects that we do, it's, it's, that's been a probably as big of a part of us, our success, you know, as our, as is our work in the capital stack. Yeah. Which is a great segue into my next question, because I'm curious the information you should know, um, as a developer before determining if redeveloping a building is even feasible. And, um, so obviously going to the municipalities and requesting more information on what's available, um, going to communities and figuring out what they want, maybe talking with economic developers and businesses in the community. And then you mentioned capital stack. And I'm curious with that, what what do you take into consideration beforehand? Maybe how is how is the capital stack different? You mentioned trying not to be in any debt um, as you're acquiring a building. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. There's a lot there. there. There's a great question. <laughs> um, so the, uh, I would say... Um, what to do with a building, you know, what, it, what, what is, how do we determine that? You know, and, and typically you'd say, oh, we have a feasibility study. And, mm -hmm. and yes, a lot of times by the time a building comes to me, it's already had a feasibility study and has all the opinions in the world that <laughs> everyone thinks of what it should be. And they just, you know, maybe there's some element they're just having difficulty figuring out. Maybe the market wasn't right. Maybe it's a timing issue. And, We've seen all of that. And, you know, what we typically find is that in appraisal, you look at highest and best use. So when you're doing new build, you're like, okay, what's, what's this land? What's highest and best use? Um, highest and best use, you know, could be this. It could be like, you know, in your, in your case, obviously flex space, you know, light industrial, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And, um, you know, but for an existing building and like a downtown district, for example, it, there's so many things. It could be, you know, Hotel, Airbnb, office, retail, combination, some mixed use, right? Parking. I mean, there's all these different things that come in that in a, in a confined space that you can put and figure out how to make money with it or lose money. And, you know, what we look at is, okay, first, what's highest and best use? What makes the most sense? And what does the market need? And then once you determine that, can we do that here? And then we look at, we know with some of the tax credit programs, what are elements that we can feather in to qualify for these programs? Tax credits on the historic side, 
you have to know what historic fabric because there's some, uh, that you want to keep. So you to get you have to get on the national register, and that's a process on itself, and that's called a part one. Once you're there, it opens you up to different benefits at the state, different benefits at the city uh, via abatements, things like that, um, that are already there to protect our historic structures and uh, federal historic tax credits. The issue, though, is, you know, what is a tax credit? How mm-hmm. can I use it? How can I monetize it? And that in itself is a skill set. And so we're really uh, good syndicators. And we know we've figured out, you know, we know the market uh, for the state historic tax credit, for the federal. And there are a lot of great players in that space in Ohio. Um, but if you know the space, then you, you, you may not be, you know, open to get taken advantage of. So, you know, we can fully utilize the programs, uh, but we know the restrictions that come with it, you know, and, and I'm not immune to problems, you know, and they have, uh, I have, you know, issues right now on a couple problems where, you know, I've had to you know, have discussions at the State Historic Preservation Office and, and the National Park Service, and we try to be as collaborative as we can, and, but there's sometimes you just blatantly disagree. And, mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, we look in a building as to what key historic elements tell the historic significance of that building during its period of historic significance. You know how buildings can change over time. Mm -hmm. But if it was a light industrial building to start with, and you pick that period as its historic significance, then you need to do plan to do your adaptive reuse, highlighting those features and not introducing items from another time. Uh, The municipal light plant was probably a really good example because it had two historic structures there of different times. And there were some developers that were that bid on it that uh, they had a desire to tear down the second structure. And uh, you know, when you when you go there today, I personally think that's our, our offices are in the second structure. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the more pro- probably the more prominent and fantastic structures there. And it was a mid-century modern office building that we originally just called the Cube because it looked like a big cube. Mm-hmm. And you know. We went in there and we determined that, you know, the crane hook, uh, some of the blast doors, uh, the coal hopper, um, some of the switches, you know, for the downtown Columbus's power, those were of historic significance, the main walkways, um, some of the exposed steel elements, the trusses, things like that. And then we started planning around those. And that, that really is kind of the, I guess the the skill set that you have to have for the tax credit world is just understanding the program, the limitations of the program, and and trying to fit a product that works for today, Mm -hmm. you know, into that. And then once you're able to do that, and there are great firms out there that can give you advice on those elements. So, um, you know, here in Columbus, there there are several. But then you have to know how to monetize those tax credits. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a difficult thing then in itself because the same groups that can give opinions on what historic items to keep are not the ones that can tell you how to, how to monetize a tax credit. You know? So, so it's, it's, it's unique and difficult at the same time. But I think you know, Columbus is, is, is better for it. Every time somebody does a historic tax credit deal in Columbus, we're happy uh, because yeah. we, we, we don't have a lot. We don't have a lot of our historic fabric downtown. And every time you do one, it usually, usually it opens up two or three developments around it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we try to do is as we develop you know, these, some of these structures that take blight away, do adaptive reuse, 
we don't buy everything around it, you mm -hmm. know, and just sit on it and try to create a little mini empire. We, we, we do it and then it opens the market up for the next person to come in and do what they do. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's been a good recipe so far because then their success is our success. And mm -hmm. that power plant was a great example. I mean, obviously we're not going to build a stadium, you know, and we're not, we're not going to build a, you know, a hundred thousand square foot office building, parking garage and 700 apartments across the street. And, uh, by the Haslam family and, and Pizzuti doing that, it, we're a huge beneficiary of it. That's awesome. I think it um, speaks to also just Columbus in general, everyone kind of looking out for each other in the sense that if you wanted to, you could buy up all that land and do what you wanted. And like you said, create a little empire, but yeah. you're creating opportunities for other people who are then creating opportunities for other people. And it'll all come back to Columbus as a city, which... I love. And um, I'm curious what you think about Columbus as far as the future of development and redevelopment. Because like I said earlier, although there's a ton of construction happening all over, um, eventually you just have to redevelop properties. Um, and you made a great point that the properties that are already developed are on the best pieces of real estate. And I had never really thought about it that way. So that's a new perspective that I have. And so it kind of just makes it more exciting thinking about the where Columbus is headed and um, just what the future holds. But what do you think as far as in the next 10, 20, 30 years, where development is headed? So I, you know, selfishly speaking, I think there's going to be a, a large move at some point um, downtown. Mm -hmm. um, it's, everybody's done a great, a, a great job. We're here at Bridge Park right now, and this is obviously fantastic. And I, I know the Crawford Hoying guys and, and they're they're excellent at what they do. And the uh, when you think about, am I going to move to Columbus uh, in relation to Nashville, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, uh, Richmond? Y you don't make it based on yeah, Dublin's fantastic, mm -hmm. you know, or Worthington. I just I, I I'm moving there because of that. No, you you they typically make a move because of some overarching vibrancy, which is usually your, your inner core, your downtown core. It could be your, your, your airport, your uh, entertainment districts, you know, your art scene, um, some component like that. And I think that we had a huge amount of volume going uh, downtown and in the metro burbs, uh, you know, Old Town East, Short North, uh, Victorian mm -hmm. Village, Italian Village. And all of those uh, areas were just thriving up until COVID. And then they kind of, you know, with downtown, you know, really hollowing out and not being able to pack as many people in anywhere, I think everybody started looking at, okay, what does work from home look like? What does, uh, you know, maybe, you know, moving outside of town, getting more space, getting away from people. And, you know, when that, when people have made the decision that I want to live there, that is the most difficult thing to get. That's the most difficult demand. Mm -hmm. Because if I, if I have people to say, I want to live there, it's easy to get office. It's easy to get retail. It's easy to get everything else, right? Because it chases people. Mm -hmm. But the first thing is, is, you know, I can't just create residential demand. So it's starting to pick back up downtown. I think with this Intel component, it's huge, absolutely massive, because what it does is it, the people that come here uh, are experienced in urban living. And I think that it'll introduce something that eventually that we've never had before, which is reverse commuters. And I think the reverse commuter with everything that's going on, uh, Sayota Peninsula, um, 
is, is a is a big deal. And I think that um, uh, you know, uh, North Bank and Water's Edge has been great. They both been great developments. I think uh, everything Jeff Edwards does, in my opinion, is excellent. They uh, uh, I've known him for a while. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I think he uh, downtown with his developments and neighbor, uh, neighborhood launch on Gay Street was just absolutely fantastic. It was kind of before its time. But now you look at it and you're like, wow, that's just mm-hmm. a forward thinker. And the high rises that he's doing, they got a big tax credit award today. And I'm glad they did. Mm-hmm. That's the, the market tower. Mm-hmm. And when you have things like that that come in, um, that's still a tough capital stack to make, even with that tax credit. But when you have that, it, it just it, it's like a magnet to pull other people in. So I think that we're going to see a lot more growth downtown and in the metro burbs. I'm going to see a lot of urban infills. You're going to see parking lots. Uh, the mayor and uh, the city council have made it known that they want to remove parking lots. Uh, I, I know that because I own several, and, and they've <laughs> even talked about you know taxing you know mm-hmm. them and and you know honestly, if we can make the capital stack work to to build buildings on them, I'm all for it. Um, uh, CMHA is putting a large uh, affordable housing building at Mount a Third, which you know I'm a partner of them and another business, and they're they're about as good as it gets in affordable housing. So. I think downtown is, you know, going to see, you know, greener pastures here soon. And it's just, it's been rough. Um, the uh, growth of Intel is going to have such a massive impact on that Northeast uh, quadrant. And it's, it's amazing because you think like historically, like civil engineering, a lot of, a lot of cities grew over time uh, where your best residential areas would be the Northeast of town especially where we're at, uh, because you would drive, you would want the sun at your back as you were driving home and, and sun at your back as you're driving to work. And typically where do you put your sewage? Because everything, you know, flows mm-hmm. south here, uh, you would put it at the bottom of town. So a lot of times the Northeast, uh, you know, vacant of some other in- item that, that attracts people is usually where you get your most residential growth. And in Columbus, it's like we had it and, you know, they have, they've had a lot of growth sort of in the Northeast, but then it stopped at the Outer Belt for a long time and, until, you know, New Albany companies started buying everything up. And for a long period of time, it just grew straight east and it just grew straight northwest. And now what we're seeing is just, you know, Powell extended over through Sunbury mm-hmm. all the way to Newark. Mm-hmm. You're going to see an unbelievable amount of infill coming. And when that happens, it's, you know, it's roadways, it's water. I know Columbus Partnership and uh, has been, you know, widely involved in in infrastructure out there. When that happens, you're going to see a vibrancy, you know, of, of, you know, every corridor. And it's just, but the problem though, is it's going to take several years. So if you were to ask me what's it look like 10 years from now, I'd say, you know, prosperity. It's great. You know, it's that's when people are moved in and have jobs that pay taxes and the coffers of, of uh, the state and the city and all the municipalities are full. And, then, you know, everything then helps support. You can, you can build more affordable housing when that happens. There's just, there's economic avenues. The path to get there is, is, is ugly, in my opinion. Might be some growing pains along the way. I think there's a lot. Yeah. I think there's a lot. I mean, I think one of the hardest things are this affordable housing issue that we have and no one's figured it out. So it's not, I mean, we were in California a few weeks back and it's just a mess, an absolute mess. And Mm -hmm. I think it's just, now they're taking LA's general hospital and turn it into a homeless shelter. And it's, you know, it's just one of those components of where, you know, 
you can't, it's hard to figure out. But the bigger thing is as the only way right now to make money in real estate outside of the project, right? In the project, it's fee-based. You have your developer's fees, you have your general contractor's fees, you have brokerage commissions, all these different fee providers can make money. And that, that gets money in the general market. It get, you, The market improves when people build things. But the issue, though, is as an owner and a developer, the only way right now to significantly make money because the capital stacks are all squeezed with rising interest rates and high labor costs is to sell. Mm-hmm. And the reason you can sell is because other people want to buy. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird spot. And then you have to evaluate cap rate and all the yeah. other components of selling and weigh that against if you were to hold it. Yeah. And it's something that <clears throat> I have recently been learning more about with cap rate and with the growing interest rates is it's such a hard thing to evaluate against what are you waiting for something better or is it better to sell and then hope that it almost gets hope, hope that you made the best decision you could. But obviously a few months ago, cap rates were super low and now they're going back up. So um, you don't want to get too greedy. So I, I think developers, developers know how to make money in any market, a career mm-hmm. developer. Um, and if you sell, it could be, it's just a liquidity event. And I think that's, that's the biggest, the biggest thing. I know a few developers that sold, large portfolios uh, last year. It's perfect. It's perfect mm-hmm. time to sell. Low cap rate, low interest rate, drives the end cap rate. And now all of a sudden, you know, inflation's around the corner. Everyone knows that apartments and storage, you know, self-storage are inflation hedges. Mm-hmm. And it, it worked out well. But then you have this issue of what do I do with the money? Um, developers typically will figure out a spot of, of where to put it and, and what to do. Um but the overarching part of Columbus with like a lot of investors, real estate investors is, you know, right now it's a storm and it's kind of the ones that can weather the storm and not sell their assets, I think are going to be in a really good spot because, you know, rents are a supply demand issue. And with that, it's, uh, we strangled the supply. Typically you would get a strangled supply and in rising interest rates. And we're, we're going to see it here. Unfortunately, we're seeing it in affordable housing. Uh, but, uh, what happens then is over time, you know, this, you know, this, the, the usually causes construction to go down because projects start to fall off. But the problem that we have here is all of our explosive growth with Intel and all these other great companies due to the excellent job the state has done and the city has done of just making us a magnet, you know, with, uh, for, for growth is we're not seeing that. So we're seeing what's kind of the worst of everything right now, which is, Rising in, rising interest rates, uh, rising construction costs, and sort of artificially inflated rents uh, slightly. I, th- I think they won't be artificial for long. They're not going down, but I do think that it's it's because of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, we're growing so fast that. But what happens is is then people take existing Class C and Class B property, renovate it to Class A, and now all of a sudden the people that lived in B and C no longer have places to go, mm-hmm. and there's not enough tax dollars coming in other than federal dollars that came in uh, from COVID uh, to really distribute to make enough affordable housing. So it's a it's an odd spot, and it's probably three to five years. It's going to be three to five years of this. And then how big of a hole will, he, will we have dug? And, you know, what, what does it look like? You know, that's a big thing is there will be stuff going up everywhere. Um, but where are people living? And 
without a, a massive amount of increased supply, I think we're just going to we're going to see rent rates continue to rise. Uh, there's going to be a point where uh, evictions rise significantly and vacancies rise a little bit, and then it's just going to get eaten up again. Um, so it's it's like the next three to five years is it'll be very difficult. But ten years is if if anyone can hold on to real estate for ten years, they're going to make a lot of money. Mm. So everyone just wait it out. <laughs> um, well, thank you. That I think that provides some clarity for definitely people who are just now getting into development. Um, and as someone who hasn't seen the whole cycle over and over, I this is all that I know. So, but I have heard people say over and over that this is abnormal, that this is a unique time and that I'll never really see anything like this. I've, I've seen two down cycles in my career. And the first one I would say was, uh, was more typical, uh, than what people, you know, some, you know, some people have seen five, six of mm -hmm. them. Uh, um, but it was, it was excessive. I mean, it was, a uh, you know, the dot-com bubble hit, right? And then everything just kept growing even after that, which was kind of wild. And then everybody just got so aggressive with revolving debt, installment loans and home equity lines and all kinds of unique lending products and unique ways to look at people's income to approve people for loans they shouldn't have had. And when that then blew up in 08, it was like, it was a massive fall. It mm -hmm. was, that is when then we really became experts in uh, distressed assets, and it was, it, it wasn't by choice. It was because that's, if you wanted to do business, that's what you had to get good at, you know, mm -hmm. and realtors had to learn how to do uh, short sales and all these other things and foreclosures. And, um, but then the growth in commercial development apartments really exploded. And then this last one in COVID was, it was just, obviously it was, it was different. I mean, what, who, who would ever think, you know, that you could just take humans out of the equation and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, we had, I had parking, I have a parking garage downtown, a bunch of parking lots and you drive there and it's just, everything's empty. And it lasted for a while. And, you know, we were incredibly lucky. Uh, you know, it could have, it could have been worse, uh, mm -hmm. but you know, I, Columbus though, it's like you get these surges. And then, uh, I think it, it, this down cycle is more of a tightening that should, you know, it's what happens. It's normal. It's interest rates rise. Everything retracts the market then, you know, but I don't know how Intel is going to really impact that because I don't see construction rates going down. And when that happens, then we're not going to be able to build enough stuff. So then it strangles the supply. When you strangle the supply, the market can't retract. So it's a tough spot to say, all right, do I've, I've heard a couple people, we live in up Arlington have said, well, should I just, should I stay out of the market and not buy right now? I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if you want to live in a house you own, I'd mm. say buy it, you know, but you know, you can always refinance. I, I just don't know. It's a, it's a little bit odd, but it's, we're adding a lot of people and we're not building very many things. Yeah. Which I've heard. And I, I think Columbus is a great place for that to be happening because we're resilient and there are great people that can be trusted here to uh, look out for the best interests but uh, of everybody but I think um, it is I think everyone's kind of just waiting to see what happens and obviously Intel hasn't happened yet so we are all predicting and then we'll just see in a few years what what actually well, happens with them it's i mean us building residential you know mm -hmm. we don't want it to be another foxconn mm -hmm. you know to where it's like they say they're going to bring in i don't know what it was eight thousand jobs and they did two or mm -hmm. one and i think compensate yeah and i, I think we've got to build and, and we just have to get we have to be creative in how we build 
I think we need to really look at what we're building. And you know, I think the, the, the most exciting thing that we're working on is a modular apartment manufacturing facility. And it's something that we've tried to really stay quiet about it, you know, over the last few years, but we've been working on it for four and a half years now. Wow. And it's, uh, it's, it's at the, uh, uh, Westerville Road and Ennis Road. It's in an old Schottenstein's facility. It's 630, 670,000 square feet, and it's big. And it's uh, it's on 27 acres. And uh, we have we have been work. We've owned the facility now for like three years, and we're uh, just going through all of the bureaucracy on it. I mean, we won the TMUD credit uh, the first round uh, in last spring, which was huge. Uh, we we did a deal with Jobs Ohio on a, the Revite program, which mm-hmm. is grant and subordinate debt. Um, we've done new market tax credits uh, on it. Uh, we've we've really you know worked all the avenues uh, that we know uh, to try to make the project feasible, and it was still difficult. But what we're going to get is a massive uh, facility that's going to employ 300 plus people from disinvested areas and low income census tracts, and to build a product that is going to provide mass output, you know, of something that's really needed at a lower cost. And I think we're, we're well on our way there. We've got our first modulars built and the state's inspecting them. And we had the uh, uh, chief building official and his team out last week uh, from the city of Columbus uh, to look at it and go through the path of inspections. And it's a product that globally is taking place, and we're we're really proud to be building it here in Columbus because we basically have turned it into manufacturing. Um, some people who build modular uh, do it's just construction indoors, and we've taken it down to prefabrication of components. And by doing that, we can employ people that otherwise wouldn't be in the trades. Mm-hmm. So we're we're really proud of it. I think it's something that in the next year to uh, to year and a half you're going to hear a lot more. It's just um, but it's been a huge time suck for us. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. But congratulations. That's that's awesome. And again, just another way that you guys are looking out for the community. And I think just all developers should have that mindset of what can I do to help. Um, and with that, that might be your answer to my next question. But um, And my last question, actually. So if you have any other thoughts, feel free to throw on my way. But what has been your favorite project in your career, or is there one that you're looking forward to, to working on? I th- I think it's uh, this connect housing blocks the uh, the manufacturing facility mm-hmm. because you have a, a, a adaptive reuse of a large structure that we're you know most of the way through right now, and um, at the same time as you're building a manufacturing line which I've never done before. So I brought in people from you know automotive manufacturing and. Uh, we created a, a great team, and first I, I spent a lot of time creating a, a product that we were confident in, and we have good partners, really good partners. Um, so that's been a lot of fun because I feel like that is something that we can scale at an incredible rate, and it'll provide a product that takes a lot of stress out of our lives. I mean, the last few years dealing with uh, subcontractors has been painful, absolutely painful. Uh, anyone is in commercial development uh, knows exactly what I'm talking about. If anyone says, oh, no, the, the subcontractor trades, you know, in Ohio are fantastic, I, I, I would, I'd beg to differ. But I, I think um, that product is, is something to where uh, streamlining anything in construction will help. Mm-hmm. And that's something we're excited about. 
Um, as far as like an out, an out facing type project, I think, you know, the trolley district, I, I, I'm really proud of that one, uh, just because of there were so many elements. I mean, that area was voted dry by the neighborhood and that site, uh, was a no, was known blight on that side of town for a significant amount of time. And it's huge. It's five, five buildings on three and a half acres with, uh, that were crumbling, uh, brownfield, uh, with a, you know, huge site that we had to get across the street that we had to get zoned for apartments that in a neighborhood that has one of the, uh, more stringent area commissions. And we got, you know, we went through, got on the ballot, got, 80% of the vote for liquor licenses. Uh, that gave us confidence that we could actually build something. Went through all the uh, capital stack issues for tax credits. It was in a food desert. Uh, it was a low-income census tract. And when we bought that property, uh, the average real estate home price in that zip code was $147,000. And last April, uh, it was, I think it was uh, just over $300,000. Wow. So That's... it really has done a lot. And it, But we did the work on the front end. Uh, because we didn't want to be known as uh, letting a gentrification bomb off in the middle of a neighborhood, mm. uh, especially one that I used to live in. So we uh, we worked with the Columbus Foundation. We worked with the St. Vincent Family Center. Uh, we worked with Finance Fund, Ohio Capital Corporation for Housing, and we just we we tried to create something with that public market to where people could go. And um, it's been it's been huge. Like the. The different walks of life that you see there, I think, is something we're really proud of. And it just, it's going to do so much for that neighborhood over time. Growth is a, is a real thing. Uh, it, it does, you know, bring people in and push people out. But I think having a, a retail component in a neighborhood that really hasn't had one in a long time is, uh, is something that we're, that we're proud of. And I think, you know, 30 years from now, that's something that we're going to look back on and say, wow, this is this, for this whole part of downtown that whole Near East Side, it's brought a lot of people together. It brought people from Bexley in, it brought people from the neighborhood and brought them, you know, more in. And it's just a, the crossing paths of different income streams is huge. And, you know, that's, that's how you stop generational poverty is it's that friction between different income streams and places of gathering. And I'm hoping that over time, like we're just going to see people that, you know, that, you know, either go there for coffee in the mornings and meet new people and, and, you know, people begin to advance and have new opportunities uh, that otherwise would never have been there. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's incredible because you are getting to have a direct impact on the people of Columbus. And like you mentioned earlier, that opens up opportunities for other people to do the same. So um, it's really inspiring, actually, this podcast turned into, I feel like an inspirational Columbus and redevelopment and where we're headed. So I'm excited about it all. But um, I do feel like I learned a lot. And it again, it was just a brand new topic that I've never really um, dove into. So I was just excited to, to get to ask you about it. And um, thank you so much for providing all that information and your willingness to take time and share with us. So well, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you having me. And I, it's been it's been nice to meet you. I've 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 been a fan of actually checking out some of the other podcasts. Before this, I I, I got on and I, I saw some of the other people that you had on, yeah. and it's impressive. It's an impressive group. You've done a great thing here, and uh, thank you for thinking of me. Thank you. Of course. 